0: You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, Season 1, Episode 35. Well, hello there, and welcome back to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Holthy, coming to you live from the beautiful province of Alberta, Canada. I am recording this episode of the Canadian Immigration Podcast on November the 26th, and uh, it is starting to get cold here in Canada, but not quite cold enough to prevent me from going for a ride on my fine quarter horse, Joe. I am really looking forward to that, getting out. It gives me an opportunity to to just get away from all of this craziness. You know, we've just experienced changes to the express entry process, and I took all that time to create the express entry course, and now I'm going to have to go back and, and re-record a whole bunch of the uh, the video tutorials associated with it. But that is my life as a Canadian immigration lawyer. Just when I think I have everything figured out, The government goes and changes it on me. And uh, if any of my clients are like yours, um, a lot of them were going through the process of obtaining LMIAs or labor market impact assessments with their employers only to realize that now it is not the golden ticket that it once was. And uh, so we're now going back to the drawing board to determine what options might be available. And I think for most of our clients here in Alberta, uh, the AINP is the route that you're going to have to go now if you are faced with uh, a loss of those 600 points because of the changes that the government made on November the 19th. At any rate, um, that's life. We move on. Um, We just have to deal with it. In this episode, I am super excited to have Shrish Trachalia join me. And uh, Shrish is a Canadian immigration lawyer practicing in Edmonton, Alberta. And I've entitled this podcast Defending the Vulnerable, an immigration lawyer story. And I think it's a perfect title for this podcast because that's really what Shrish has made a career of doing. She's taken on cases, um, you know, for foreign nationals in particular who faced injustices within the immigration system that just simply cry out for redress. You know, people who through maybe no fault of their own or maybe an innocent oversight or mistake... Um, have been shut out, and their dream of becoming a permanent resident of Canada has been shattered in other cases it 's really difficult applications of immigration law, such as in the case of criminal inadmissibility, or I should say that that is one of them but but in the case of medical inadmissibility, rather, where people, through you know uh, the contracting of cancer or other uh, diseases such as that become find themselves inadmissible to Canada right in the midst of uh, going through their permanent resident application. So if uh, you or anyone you know is going through a difficult situation like this where they're seeing their hope and dream of becoming a permanent resident drift away from them because of, you know, a medical illness or something like that or failing to pay the proper processing fees on a work permit extension, which is one I'm dealing with right now myself, uh, someone who has a permanent resident application in the queue, and unfortunately he... Uh, unfortunately, he paid the wrong fee and uh, when he was submitting his work permit application and it got refused. <clears throat> so then he thought he would hire a, a lawyer in Calgary to help him, who obviously didn't have a clue what the freak they were doing because they then uh, botched that and now he is on the ropes. So um, after doing this podcast with Sharish, I decided to take on that file, which usually I refer to other lawyers, um, to help this individual. So if anything you get from this podcast, if you are an immigration lawyer, it's the need to to step up and challenge the government when you need to, um, but also to to just sometimes take on cases on a pro bono capacity to help people who genuinely need our help. And as immigration lawyers, we are so blessed. We have so many opportunities that so many other people don't have. I think as far as lawyers go, we have one of the most rewarding areas of of legal practice that possibly exists out there. And so with all of that for us, even though the Canadian immigration system right now is just, <clears throat> it's it's brutal and it's so frustrating and so challenging, um, we have it really good. And so this is the message that I want you to get from, from Sharish and what she shares with us, her story, some of the experiences that she's had, why she does what she does, and her um, her encouragements to all of us to step forward and to take on more of this um, advocacy work, especially on behalf of those who face injustices. All right, let's go forward now and hear the interviews that I did with Sharish Chotalia. Well, I am here with... Um, Just an amazing lawyer. I'm so excited to have her join us on the podcast, Shrish Chotalia. She is practicing up in Edmonton and uh, she's here to talk a little bit about some of the amazing things that she has done. I know that the listeners are going to be very, very interested. Um, Welcome to the podcast, Shrish.
1: Oh, well, Mark, thanks so much for having me and for your generous comments. (laughs)
0: Well, you know, as we go on with this podcast, um, people are going to get a real opportunity to see that uh, any generous comments I make are probably um, uh, very, very conservative in terms of, of uh, all of the really neat things that you've done throughout your professional career. So um, thank you so much for coming and joining us.
1: Well, thank you.
0: So today, um, I asked Trish to come and join us uh, for, well, really for one of the more the more I guess uh, the the most important reason is just the advocacy work that she has done. And it's not your typical immigration advocacy work. You know, she has specialized for a long time um, dealing with really the, the disenfranchised people out there, people that maybe don't have a voice, that that need someone to stand up for them. And uh, she has made a, just an amazing uh, legal career out of helping people to just have a better life and and to find a better resolution to some of, you know, these just really serious challenges. Um, uh, um, uh, Sharish has has dealt with issues, you know, revolving around human rights um, and all of that as it's interlaced within the immigration context. Uh, If I was to go through uh, the biographical information that she gave me, I think we could probably do a podcast alone just on that. (laughs) (laughs) But um, it's really something that I don't want to pass up. And uh, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to give a little bit of a a highlight on some of the things that... Kind of the highlights, I guess, uh, with respect to Sharisha's practice. Uh, but I'm going to upload a copy of her resume because it's just full of all the various cases that she's argued at the various levels of uh, of court across uh, the country, and also she's been involved in just some really neat organizations. Um, you know, uh, not not the least of which the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. And um, just in a number of different capacities uh, that are not, I guess you'd say almost non-traditional for, for an immigration uh, practitioner. So uh, I'm going to upload that into the show notes of the podcast. And then people will get a chance to just see some of the things um, that, that Shrish has done. Because obviously we won't be able to talk about all of them. Um, uh, Shrish has, has been a litigation lawyer uh, from basically 1987 to, to present. She was the the tribunal chairperson for the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal uh, from two thousand nine to two thousand twelve. Uh, she served faithfully as a, an elected bencher for the Law Society of Alberta from two thousand eight to two thousand nine. She has received the esteemed designation as Queen's Counsel back in two thousand eight for the just for the uh, the the amazing work that she has done to to uh, advocate and advance the the cause of uh, you know of of, of our association, the the law societies and and everything that, goes, that that comes in with being respected by your peers as someone that's a leader in your field. Um she was a special advocate uh, with Canada in two thousand and eight, and I'm going to stop right here, Shrish. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? What does it mean to be a special advocate?
1: Well, a special advocate, they um, deals with cases of terrorism, and I actually taught terrorism, and the law and the law at the University of Alberta. And had a case uh, wherein um, a a client of mine was alleged to have been a terrorist. And I took his uh, case right to the CERC, the Security Intelligence Review Committee, and obtained a ruling that CSIS's information was outdated, its brief was of extremely poor quality, and that there really was no evidence that uh, my client was anything other than a peaceful, law-abiding individual. So I did a lot of work in the terrorism area, and a special advocate was a person who could be, uh, could, could be named to represent a person alleged to be a terrorist, in short. <laughs>
0: oh, wow. Huh. So
1: it was uh, very interesting, um, because again, we're, you know, we're, our job as lawyers is to ensure that there is an evidentiary basis for the decisions that are taken or made by the government.
0: Hmm. Well, that's very cool. I, I know that was a term that I you know, I, I wasn't familiar with myself, and uh, so you had that opportunity in 2008. That's really neat. Um, I see that you're also a member of both the Alberta and Ontario bars, and um, you've completed your LLM at the University of Alberta, as well as your Bachelor of Laws and uh you're an english major
1: yes um i'm no longer a of the ontario barges for your information okay. because i thought but um yes i am an english major i love writing and um, i've always had a passion for uh writing so i hope that i can return to that in a in, in some time
0: well you can see how that type of a background would most definitely be an advantage as as you're advocating on behalf of uh, of clients and appearing before the courts, and you know trying to uh, uh, write persuasively and all of those things that come together with with becoming a uh, an advocate, um, you can see that that type that type of a background would fit perfect.
1: Well, I think my uh, I do remember when I was a young lawyer initially at the bar, and I had taken a constitutional challenge to the provisions where uh you know if there were uh, relationships between people under underage and mm-hmm. there was consent and I recall our uh, quoting Shakespeare in the <laughs> Court of Appeal <laughs> and the Chief Justice of Alberta still uh, gives me a hard time about that every time I see her
0: <laughs> uh, well I'm I'm definitely sure that there are worse things to be quoting in in, in the Court of Appeal than Shakespeare <laughs> Oh, that's fun. That's awesome. So um, right now, um, you are a barrister with uh, Pundit and Chotalia LLP, Barristers and Solicitors in Edmonton. And um, that is, can you talk a little bit about your firm?
1: Sure, I can talk. I mean, at this point, I basically practice with my father. My father obtained his uh, BA, LLB and BSc in India many, many years ago came to Canada in 1964 as a teacher and then redid his law degree at the age of 39 and went to the University of Alberta and obtained uh, his law degree again in 1971 and was called to the bar here in Edmonton. And in fact, the same justice admitted me to the bar as my father. Uh, So, and I've practiced with him from 1987 until he just retired recently so i've kept the name of pundit and chitalia which is his name and my middle name (laughs) just uh, just as a sign of uh, respect Um, so essentially right now i'm alone but i practiced with him for all of these years and i have to say it was just a a a pleasure just a pleasure Ah. to have had an opportunity to do that
0: um what a wonderful experience
1: Yes. And having a small practice, I have to say, because of that, I think that allowed me not to worry so much about billings and cash in, which, you know, many of my colleagues and as you know, in the legal profession, we have to live by that model. Yes. And um, I was fortunate enough to be in a position where I could assist people, even if uh, they couldn't necessarily pay me uh, immediately or at any time or. I could do pro bono work. I did quite a bit of pro bono work for the Alberta Civil Liberties Association as counsel on the Sikh turban case, uh, which is people know may know uh, a little bit about where uh, some people in Calgary sued the RCMP saying they shouldn't allow Sikhs to wear a turban as serving uh, RCMP officers. And of course we had that decision overturned uh, as well. I was. Uh, counsel on the in, as intervener for Ccla and the Vrend case on the uh, Human Rights Act where sexual orientation was read in uh, uh, and the case involved of course mr. delwyn Vrend who was asked to declare his sexual orientation and then promptly fired as a laboratory computer uh, uh, specialist. Hmm. So again, I mean, a lot of these cases, I, I had to, those were of course pro bono, but even some of the live in caregiver cases I took on judicial review to the federal court, I was able to do on a fundraising basis. So, for example, a case called Felipe, and then a, a series of live in caregiver cases after that. In Felipe, there was a woman who was a Filipino caregiver from the, uh, who had contracted breast cancer in Canada and was asked to leave due to the medical inadmissibility provisions, as we all know, of the Immigration Act. And so I took a charter challenge to that. And of course, in her case, in the end, the government settled her case, so we didn't get a ruling on the, on the, then Section 191, and it's uh, whether or not it would pass the Section 15 charter um, analysis at the time. But we, um, you know, again, that case, the community did some fundraising and uh, that provided me with some funds. And um, in the end, you know, we were successful for her. And so it was extremely gratifying. And I think that that is the The privilege that we as immigration lawyers have, Uh, I did a series of live in caregiver cases wherein um, the Associate Chief Justice at the time, Mr. Justice Jerome, uh, said that there was a, that the Foreign Domestic Worker Program at the time, as it was called, uh, required that the department take a flexible and constructive approach to the processing of these applications. And later on, that was picked up, you know, even in the and continues to be in the law under the limb case. And I've used that argument actually in other cases and judicial reviews that I do to argue that the department should be taking note of the of the intention of the Immigration Act, which is, of course, to help people to immigrate to Canada.
0: <laughs> I know.
1: As, as obvious as it may seem. <laughs> I
0: know. And
1: not not to bar them. And uh, I think that, you know, as we're talking about this, I think it's just uh, the importance of the work of immigration lawyers cannot be understated because essentially we are human rights lawyers. Essentially, we are trying to fight for the rights of the most disenfranchised, uh, often disenfranchised um, people that have made it to Canada or have not uh, and maybe overseas, but are trying to make a be- enter Canada and make a better life here. And when they do that, of course, they're making a better life not only for themselves but for our communities. So I always have felt and continue to feel that it's a that being a barrister and being a litigator, being a lawyer is a privilege. And I, I think that we should never cease to remember how remember that. And I know that some days, uh, our builder coming in, and <laughs> and yes. uh, and we're getting calls. Uh, we're over. We're inundated with work, and uh, it's a. It's not easy. It's tough. But if we keep focused on the fact that uh, we want to help these people succeed, and we remember that the federal court is a court of equity. In and I always I often refer that refer to that in my briefs that the federal court is a court of equity, and. While there are statutory uh, provisions, of course, in the Act and the regulations, how we uh, interpret that and how we look at that, um, we should never forget uh, that there. if there is an inequity, I feel that the court should be invited to assist uh, the applicant.
0: No, that's uh, that. All of these cases that you're referring, I'm just going to mention to our listeners that in the uh, in the bio, when I when I describe this as a bio, it's <laughs> it's not quite your traditional bio. It is full of all of the the cases, like the Vreen case, the Felipe, um, all of the it's all there. Citation, you know, a brief little summary. So there is a tremendous amount of resources in here as well, and and they're even broken down into into different categories. So. Um, these are some of the, the cases that uh, that Shrisha has obviously uh, had an integral part in. And it's really cool to hear that some of these causes that you've taken on have been in a pro bono capacity. And I guess let's take a step back. I'm curious to know how you got into immigration law. How did you get into practicing this area?
1: Well, I think it's, number one, of course, I am of, uh, I am an immigrant myself. I mean, I came to Canada when I was two years old. My brother was born here. And my father, at the time, there were very, very few immigration lawyers when he started practicing in 1971, 72. And I think he was one of the first immigration lawyers to go to, uh, to an, take an appellate level case on back then and uh, i think when i started practicing it when i was called in 87 again there were very very few immigration lawyers and unlike today's situation uh, today's uh, scenario where we're so fortunate to have the resources we do Uh, So I think that what occurred is people just started coming to me from different, initially from the Indian community and then from various communities, telling me about the difficulties that they were having with the immigration offices. And I was one of the early litigators and saying, well, there's got to be a way to challenge this. And I remember that I, the first judicial review I ever filed, and I remember the lawyers retired at the Department of Justice, but I had the forms all wrong, and he pointed it out to me. But but we got the case going, and uh, I learned how to do the forms correctly. But, <laughs> you know, it, it was in the early days, and in fact, those were the heydays this is another thing when I when I graduated from law school that the Charter of Rights and Freedoms had just been uh, come into had been enacted and had come into force the uh, Section 15 equality provisions in 1987. So these were the hey these were heady days where I I felt so excited as a lawyer to be able to take these cases on whether it be in the criminal or in the human rights or in the immigration. Area is to say, well, here's this brand new tool that we have, which is called the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And uh, even though I was just a junior lawyer and, you know, not particularly a good cross-examiner, I remember in a case called R versus Thompson where I used two years at the bar. I had a section of the Criminal Code struck down as unconstitutional, uh, and but unfortunately, my client was convicted because i wasn't very good at cross examining him at that time and <laughs> <laughs> so i i say this because i have i have with great humility i say that the opportunities that have come to me have come to me because you know that wasn't in my hands and uh, but you know it is by the grace of god really that i've been able to assist the people that i have and um hopefully when they have succeeded it's it's been so special and uh gratifying for me as a as a lawyer and as a person
0: that is awesome you know, it's, it, you can't help but be inspired, you know, <laughs> to some extent listening to even just these 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 little comments that you're making. It, it reminds me of when I read a John Grisham book and I think, boy, I should be a litigator. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's, you know, I, I can only imagine what it, what it would have been like back then. And I think lots of new lawyers are afraid to to wade into those waters they you know they want to stay in their comfort zones they don't want to look like they don't know how to you know get the uh, you know the the court documents proper when they're filing <laughs> with the court of appeal and you know or the federal court so <laughs> well, all of this well, is Mark just... I
1: hope I don't get them wrong anymore <laughs> Oh
0: no no I, what I mean is when you're starting out and yes, I, and when I can speak from my, out, yes. yeah. and I can speak from from my from my own perspective that's for sure
1: Yes. Well, that's the thing is I think that um, if we, you know, I really honestly believe if we see an injustice or we see inequity, there has to be a way that the law will provide redress. I honestly believe that. And that is why I have taken the cases on that I have, because I've always felt that the courts will provide recourse. And we're so lucky in Canada to have rule of law which you know we should never take for granted, which we know does not exist in many many countries in the world. In fact, I just won a convention refugee claim for a human rights lawyer from Cambodia, and what had occurred without breaching solicitor client privilege or giving too many too much details is the political situation in Cambodia is so dire that there is extensive corruption throughout the government and the judiciary. And in in the case, in my client's case, I mean, and in fact, this is public publicly available on the websites. If you have a look at what's occurring in Cambodia, uh, we have a, a government that's been in power, the same prime minister, president for some 33 years. Wow. And uh, anybody that opposes uh, the government is subjected to detention, arrest, torture, and uh, death. And just recently, uh, yes, uh, 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 just recently, just uh, uh, last, within the past uh, three weeks, a uh, dissident was killed. And this is occurring regularly and daily. And yet here in Canada, we are so far removed uh, that we don't even hear about what's occurring in many of these countries. And because they may not be strategically of political or other resource capital, uh, uh, they may not be of particular interest, I suppose, to our government and to uh, us, we don't follow them and we don't know what's going on. Wow. Uh, in fact, I wanted to make a trip to Cambodia to see the Angkor Wat temples and I know that many Canadians m- would have done that yet the tourism industry carries on um, and we are completely unaware mm. of the dire human rights situation that's going on there.
0: Just oblivious.
1: Yes, we're oblivious to it. We're abs- mm. I was absolutely oblivious to it until this a client came to me and I began to read and understand what was happening there. So I would certainly, um, this is what another privilege of working in the immigration field is that it gives us an opportunity to broaden our understanding of the world and to broaden not only our our ability to challenge the Canadian government, but hopefully to understand what uh, the situation is like in other countries and how, in a, you know, in many ways we are so fortunate to live in a country like Canada. And that is, in fact, why I'm so uh, so interested in the field of immigration is that it seems to me that many others also deserve to live in a country as uh, as liberal and caring in general and humanitarian as Canada is. Um, i think we're we're canada is a unique country and i and i say that with um you know i say that with uh, uh, you know sincerely i say that sincerely because i think when we travel and we travel to other countries or we read and we understand what's happening in the many countries in the continent of africa or we see what's going on in the middle east we see what's going out going on in south america um you know it it, we realize that we're very privileged to live in this country and uh if if we can't make the changes in other countries we're hopeful that we can at least share our good fortune with others
0: yes and you know it's interesting for myself who primarily has maintained a business immigration practice you know more of a solicitor type practice assisting people with their applications um you know i've missed out on a lot of that Uh, i look at the immigration lawyers who do a lot of refugee work, they're exposed to this a little bit more. You know, in the type of work that you do, the advocacy work that you do, you're exposed to, you know, some of the country conditions that, that are in existence all around the world and how terrible things can be. And, uh, you know, my limited amount of traveling abroad, you know, you know even when we do travel, um, when we're traveling in the capacity of a tourist, a lot of this stuff just slips past us and we don't really know what's going on. Um, I think, you know, from my perspective, one of the things that got me into immigration was, uh, was just, uh, I spent two years serving a mission for my church over in Portugal. Now, obviously, at that time, it was far removed from the dictator Salazar, who ran the fascist dictatorship there. Um, there was, you know, it was, it was quite a democratic uh country, and obviously it is now, but the, the reality is just being able to, to get out of my country, to be able to see how people live, you know, I was able to see some pretty poor people in some pretty destitute circumstances, even in Portugal, you know, and that was back in the very early nineties. But when that, you know, even that pales in comparison to what you're talking about, where people, you know, if they don't toe the line, it's not a matter of, you know, of, of a politician being upset with them. It's a matter of life or death. And, you know, the, the, the leadership of the country, like you've indicated, especially with Cambodia, and I have some Cambodian clients right now that I'm working with, not in the context of of, uh, of a refugee application, it's, it's a disposal sponsorship, but you start to learn a little bit more about how these conditions in these countries are, um, how they really are. And us as Canadians, you know, the news picks up, the, the, you know, the, the print media and, and, and online and, and uh, TV, the, the news picks up on the stuff that's sexy, that's flashy, and, you know, there's these... You know the these stories that are you know they deem of, of of direct impact to Canada. Well, you know how people are being treated in Cambodia right now. You know most of the average Canadian population could care less. Yes, and because so. they
1: but because they don't know. I mean,
0: mm-hmm.
1: for example, just one headline is Kem Lee, Cambodian political analyst, shot dead in Phnom Penh shop, and this is July tenth, twenty sixteen. Oh. And then uh, you know his is. He was a a strong critic of the government. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, we don't hear about this. And I also follow BBC and I was unaware of this. So some of these stories just don't make it to the uh, popular media fronts because we're just bombarded with so much uh, injustice really in the world.
0: Yes. So
1: I think that... uh, being an immigration lawyer allows us a window uh, into the reality of uh, others that we often may not have. And I think that that is an, a privilege that we, we you know, that, uh, you know, it's always been a privilege for me to be able to learn about other countries and other places and, and uh, how we can help individuals in those situations.
0: Wonderful. And I, and I agree 100% with that. Now, what I'd like to do now, Shrish, if you're okay, I, I'd like to delve into some of the practical experiences that you've had. And uh, obviously, one of the things that you identified to me is that, you know, immigration practice, you've really seen it through, through a human rights lens. And can you elaborate a little bit more on that?
1: Yes, I mean, I think that there, again, as I'd mentioned, is I think, Every case that comes to you of inequity can be a human rights case. There, I mean, there is a human rights statute, of course, in Alberta and federally. And in fact, I was the chairperson of the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, and those cases and those those commissions uh, are often dealing with anti discrimination legislation. So that you you know, in the area of housing, uh, tenancies, employment, public services, you cannot discriminate against a person on the basis of enumerated grounds such as race, religion, gender, and so on. Um, So that is a narrow subsection of what people commonly know as human rights. And so when I say human rights in a broader term, I think that anyone that isn't experiencing inequity in their life and the, you know there should be a legal avenue to assist that person, and that's why I'm saying that really it becomes eclectic whether you're practicing in the area of employment law, or you're practicing in the area of criminal law, or you're practicing in the area of immigration law. The charter and human rights statutes can always be of assistance to you uh, in in trying to redress a wrong that you clearly see your client going through
0: now you've said obviously that you you've got a fairly extensive line of of cases and experiences dealing with uh, live-in caregivers can you is there any particular uh, ones you'd like to share that you think would be you know um, instrumental in in helping us to understand uh, you know how a, an immigration lawyer can can step in and and uh, try to help rectify injustices
1: well, certainly, like I mean I've had um, for example, some of these live-in caregivers that have come to me just recently, I had a client uh, and I who I had obtained a temporary resident permit for because her daughter was inadmissible. And so this was many years ago uh, and after three years, of course, she then became uh, eligible under the permanent res- permit resident. Sorry, you know
0: the yes, the, permit, yeah, Im- the
1: permit resident category. category.
0: Mm-hmm. And just two, to, just to okay. clarify, maybe just some of our listeners may not even know what a TRP is. So this this temporary resident permit is essentially uh, it, it's it, for anyone who who has any. <laughs> Uh, they they've they're found non compliant with any form of the immigration act or they you know it applies to people who might be inadmissible for various reasons, but basically allows them to to obtain something that they normally would not otherwise be able to obtain um it's It's kind of a discretionary grant uh this special permit and then you were indicating that this permit this t r p then it forms um, it can form the basis of an actual permanent resident application because there's a special permit holders class that allows people if they've been here in Canada long enough they then are able to qualify for permanent residence just for the simple fact they've been on a TRP. So that's kind of like the the nuts and bolts and so for those of you who are wondering well what is a, a temporary resident permit? That's what yes, it is. I'm
1: sorry. I no, that's have just okay. Said something no, something no, no. like a minister's permit to <laughs> overcome any kind of inadmissibility. Yes. So because one of her, I mean, these are heartbreaking cases. I mean, you have got a person that had come to Canada in 2008 as a live-in caregiver, sacrificed her life for her children that are, who are still in the Philippines, then, of course, discovers that after fulfilling the requirements as a live-in caregiver, she and her dependents are inadmissible because one child has a uh, mental disability. Uh, So again, right there, you think, well, how can, is this right? I mean, I understand that the immigration act has medical admissibility uh, provisions, but then we need to think outside the box and think, well, is there a way to challenge that for this particular client? Is there a way around it? And that's where, as immigration lawyers, um, most of us would think, well, perhaps we can get a minister's permit. And that's what I did for her many years ago. Then, when she became eligible for permanent resident status, uh, her daughters then were over age and still oh. found to be inadmissible. So, I was lucky enough to uh, start the judicial review for her and then find a number of uh, administrative issues with respect to representations that. They had made. In fact, I think that the officer in the Edmonton office had wanted her to bring her her daughters with her and had made representations to that effect. And so, I filed a judicial review and said that look, there were representations made, and she understood all along that they would be coming, and so on and so on. And at any rate, uh, we were successful in that the crown consented to the decision. And here's an example of of a of a woman and to her two children, who are now hopefully going to be coming to Canada soon. And this is an example of how we can use our practices to make real differences for real people. Um, and just how grateful she was and is, is, you know, it just, um, it's, it, it touch, you know, it's very touching.
0: <laughs> and you know, Shrish, when I speak with many immigration lawyers and I ask them, well, why did you get into it? You know, and, and once you got into immigration, you know, why did you stay? What was satisfying about it? And I think for the vast majority of us, it's for this exact reason, in, in whatever capacity, you know, even helping someone get a work permit when they didn't think they were going to be able to do it. You know, it's making a difference in people's lives. And, and our clients are genuinely appreciative of what we do. And it's tremendously satisfying. And so absolutely, when you when absolutely. you talk about, you know, these experiences and, and this recent one, um, you mentioned before a little bit about um, another, um, it was a medical inadmissibility uh, because of uh, the individual coming, working and contracting cancer. Could you yes. talk a little bit about that one?
1: Yes. We, I had a case and that's way back already in 1994 where we had a, I had a live-in caregiver who had contracted uh, breast cancer in Canada after completing much of her uh, LCP program, or it was the Foreign Domestic Workers program at the time, and was being asked to leave. And of course, the community was supporting her, as was her employer. And really, she was found to be inadmissible. So what I did do is take a challenge to Section 191 a of the Immigration Act at the time, to say that it violated Section 15 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms and would not be a reasonable limit within Section 1. So it was a significant amount of work, be- especially in those days, before the computers were as handy and the notices to the Attorney Generals were more difficult to get across the country. But mm-hmm. but we, you know, we filed it, and we were ready to go and to make the arguments, and then the Crown conceded the case. So she was... Again, this was the case that we talked about where it would be, it would have been nice to have a precedent for others. But of course, we had to deal, she was my client, we had to deal with her. And um, in fact, we were able to have her stay. And um, I mean, that, again, was tremendously satisfying um, for, for me uh, as, a, as an individual and as her lawyer.
0: Well that sounds excellent. I the the work that you've done uh for these people I I can only imagine how grateful they they have been and uh you know when they're in the precipice of having to be removed especially like this live in caregiver who who contracted the breast cancer here in Canada um I can only imagine how much appreciation she had for you when she probably felt that all was lost. So, I can see that there's, you know, getting paid as, a, as an immigration lawyer is one thing, but but just knowing the difference you're making in people's lives is is an entirely other benefit that just can't be quantified. Now, I know that there's going to be lawyers that are listening to this that are very interested in knowing how they can get more involved. And, you know, those cases will just come sometimes come across our desks, but when they do come... Uh, it can kind of be a little bit overwhelming sometimes, and i I was wondering if you had any tips or suggestions or advice for you know for young lawyers who are looking at getting into this type of immigration advocacy
1: uh, well, Mark, I mean as lawyers we're under tremendous challenges ourselves because we have to uh, meet our overhead we're often in firms where we are expected to provide you know so many so much uh, revenue to the firm and we're often very very busy and um, we're doing we're multitasking so i i think that when deserving files come forward where there are equity issues i i would suggest that um, as lawyers, I know that we're very dedicated to our clients as well. And I think that what the first thing to do is take a step back and breathe and say, listen, is this a is this a case that I honestly believe the client has been wronged? And is this the case that I'm passionate about helping this individual uh, seek redress and find an equitable solution? And I think that if we take that step back and ask that question of ourselves, uh, uh, then we can say, take the next step and say, uh, well, this is a case I truly and genuinely believe in. I'm passionate about this case. I believe that this person has been wronged. And I'm going to do what I need to do to make this, uh, to put my best efforts into this particular case. And I think that if we take that, um, added, you know that sort of uh, analysis, we might use that analysis to um, say that this is the case I believe in, I want to do it on a pro bono basis, or I want to uh, keep track of my time and give the client an account so they understand what the value of the work that we have done entails but just uh, maybe they can make a community fundraising efforts. Of course, we would check if legal aid would cover it. Uh, so there are some options. And, of course, the law society and our profession is very much in tune with um, encouraging lawyers to do pro bono work. And I know in the immigration bar we do extensive pro bono work. So I think that... Um, I encourage uh, my colleagues and uh, even myself, this is uh, inspiring for me to talk about this work again because it re-inspires me to uh, take on more of this type of work on a pro bono basis or a community fundraising basis or a pay as you will basis. And by doing that, we know that we've made a difference for an individual or a family and that difference It will last that family, that individual, a lifetime. And uh, while we can make other volunteer commitments in other places, we can provide financial, charitable donations to various organizations, I think the work that we can do ourselves for people that are genuinely and truly deserving um, is tremendously satisfying and provides us with a work satisfaction that Uh, Other types of um, volunteerism may not. So I encourage uh, lawyers to take it on.
0: I am inspired. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I love how you rephrased. You, you described the various ways in which we can do work for people. You know, through pro bono. You know, when you're just completely doing it voluntarily, or you know, there's there's kind of crowdfunding and and you know other communities involved to help cover some of the legal costs. One of the ones that I find the most satisfying at times is the pay as you will, and uh, just for some of those people who are, who are not quite familiar with that, I. And I understand it to be essentially, well, what can you afford? And um, whatever you're able to pay, then that's good enough for me. And it's amazing. I'll I'll tell you, it is absolutely amazing the feeling you get when you're doing something. And this is true, pure service, you know, for someone when you're expecting nothing in return. And it's those files that I've assisted people with, whether it's, you know, a simple extension of a work permit or something like that is definitely not as, as a, You know, life altering. I haven't had those experiences like you have with, you know, some of the cases that you've described here in our interview today. But the satisfaction that comes from it, it keeps us sane. It keeps us really enjoying life as a lawyer. And uh, when it comes down to just money and meeting the expenses of the office, and, and if that is your sole and only focus, it, you can become pretty discouraged. But doing this type of volunteer work and, and pro bono work, and, and even you know when clients can pay helping them to achieve results that they couldn't normally obtain on their own, there's just an unbelievable amount of satisfaction that comes from it, a feeling that you're actually making a difference in the world and uh, and Sharish I am sure as people look at your resume and and what we'll upload into the show notes on the podcast they'll see the difference that you've made in so many other people's lives and and I really really appreciate you taking the time uh, to join us and to share some of these stories and your experience it's been invaluable
1: oh well thank you so much Mark because you yourself are inspiring by by doing this podcast and by taking on the work that you do on a pay-as-you-will basis and uh I encourage you to continue your uh, dedication in this area.
0: Thank you so much. Now, Sharish, if there are people that say, "Hey, you know what? I really value what what Sharish has done, and and I've I need I have some immigration that I need help with. How do I get in contact with her? Uh, what is the best way of reaching out to you?
1: Oh, it's my uh, email, which is but just my name. Uh, it could be info at
0: Perfect all right, well, thank you so much once again for for joining us on the podcast and uh, maybe we can have you back again in the future
1: sure, thanks, Mark and Mark. I was just going to mention that on my website and I sent you a link for a Mexican family that I helped through several judicial reviews uh, with an h and c application a very mm-hmm. deserving case and if they if people wanted to see that um, they're certainly welcome to do that because that was again one case that was particularly uh, satisfying.
0: Excellent. I will definitely put a link to that within the show notes. Okay. All right. Take Thank care. you so very much. Well, if that interview with Sharish wasn't inspiring, I, I don't know what would be. Um, you know, she's taken on some really difficult cases, and I know many of my colleagues out there that are listening to this podcast, um, and even the the everyday listener. Um, has probably had some experience going through similar situations that that she described um, or know someone who had to go through a struggle to overcome pretty insurmountable odds when it comes to their immigration applications. Now, I want to express just tremendous appreciation for Sharish and all of the immigration lawyers and consultants who have come on my podcast to share insight and share thoughts, and they're so willing to come on. That's the thing that's so exciting to me. When I started this podcast, I never dreamed that it would be, um, you know, that it would take off the way it has. And so whether you are, uh, an immigration lawyer or a consultant or just a foreign national or even a permanent resident dealing with some difficult issues um, or even a government officer because I know, you know, some of the CBSA and and, uh, and IRCC officers actually listen to the podcast, which is extremely flattering. Um, I'm yet to convince one of the active officers to come on, uh, but the, uh, the invitation has been extended and, and it would be wonderful to get a view from the other side. Uh, traditionally i 've had to go to ex immigration officers uh, who are either retired or moved on from uh, from the department to to come on the podcast, but it would be wonderful, and so i 'll extend a challenge to any immigration officers out there or c b s a officers uh, or even the provincial nominee programs who would love uh, who who would be willing to come on the podcast with me. I think it would just add tremendous value because often the message that we portray is our experience as lawyers and what do we face? Well, often we face difficult situations where clients come to us because of some perceived wrong or there's something that's gone wrong. Or obviously in the best scenario, <clears throat> they come to us when they just want to make sure, <clears throat> excuse me, things are done right, right from the beginning. So that's a special invitation to any government officer who's willing to come on the podcast. Just send me an email at uh, mholthy M-H-O-L-T-H-E at com and uh We'll get you on here. Um, if any of you have any ideas for future podcasts that you think would be great to uh, to have uh, covered here within the Canadian Immigration Podcast, just also send me a note. And uh, if there's anyone out there that is struggling with any aspect of Canadian immigration, um, boy, there's sure a strong stable of, of uh, wonderful speakers uh, or in- invitees on the podcast that you can go back and listen to. Um, that have expertise in all kinds of different areas of immigration. So I'd encourage you to reach out to them. I really go out of my way to highlight people who are doing it right. Um, immigration lawyers and consultants who are just excellent, excellent practitioners who spend the time to understand not only what the immigration guides say, but they go deeper. They know what the law is. They know what the law is going to be before it even becomes the law. And it's those those lawyers, those friends, those colleagues <clears throat> that I've had on the podcast um, in in previous episodes, and i've got a whack of awesome, awesome guests coming on in the future. Um, it's those individuals that truly make a difference in this world of Canadian immigration law, and uh, anyone who is looking for advice, direction, um, you know just representation when it comes to immigration, these are the people that you really should be hiring. And uh, sometimes there's a tendency to race to the bottom in, in fees, you know, asking who's going to do it for the cheapest or even attempting to filter your way through this crazy mass of information on the internet through these, you know, these Facebook groups and, and all these different kinds of um, uh, just different um, forums that, that are out there. And there's lots of good information in those. Don't get me wrong. But uh, if you're really looking for somewhere you can go to trust the the representation that you receive um definitely uh, i'll i'll highlight and focus all of the wonderful guests that i've had on my podcast in the past all right um i want to express appreciation to all of you listeners encourage you to please please go to iTunes and um and review or rate or rank whatever they want to call it there the Canadian immigration podcast it's getting great exposure um it was featured recently on the Canadian Lawyer Magazine which was was just absolutely wonderful uh, but it's you as listeners that really get the message out. And um, I want this to be, you know, if it's considered to be valuable to, to certain people, um, then I want as many people as possible to have the opportunity to listen to it. So that is the, that concludes the the uh, this episode, which is uh, episode, I think we're at 35. <laughs> I think that's what it is. Maybe it's 36. I haven't looked at it, but anyways, uh, of the Canadian Immigration Podcast. And um I just want to express appreciation once again for everyone that's listening and wish you all the best as you navigate this crazy world of Canadian immigration law, policy, and practice. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, your trusted source for information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. If you would like to contribute a question for future podcasts or wish to set up a legal consultation with Mark, please visit www.ht-llp.com. Oh,
2: Canada. From the Canadian immigration part.